0: my teachers told me, don't even bother with the Ivy League. They don't take kids from this area. I took the boards anyway and got into all of them. I chose Princeton. My father had offered to pay for everything, then he backed out and would only pay tuition, which if you believe it was $750 a year back then. I said, so where do I sleep? How do I eat? My parents said, you're so smart, you'll figure it out. TR, so what did you do? CI, I got a job as a beach boy at a club in the Rockaways. I was a good beach boy. The cabana owners used to say, hey kid, join our poker game, and lose your tips for the week. At first I didn't even know how to play, and they cleaned me out. So I read three books on poker in two weeks, and after that I was ten times better than any of them. To me it was a big game, big stakes. Every summer I won about $2,000, which was like $50,000 back in the 50s. Tr, How did you get started in business? Ci, After college I joined the army, where I kept playing poker. I came out with maybe $20,000 saved up and I started investing it on Wall Street in 1961. I was living good, had this gorgeous model girlfriend, and I bought a white galaxy convertible. Then the market crashed in 1962, and I lost everything. I don't know what went first, the girlfriend or the car. TR, I read that you got back in the market, selling options, then going into arbitrage. CI, I borrowed money to buy a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. I was a hotshot guy. My experience taught me that trading the market is dangerous, And it was far better to use my mathematical ability to become an expert in certain areas. Banks would loan me 90% of the money I needed for arbitrage, because back then, in riskless arbitrage, if you were good, you literally couldn't lose. And I was starting to make big money, $1.50 to $2 million a year. TR, I'd love to talk to you about asymmetric returns. Were you also looking for those when you began taking over undervalued companies? C.I., I started looking at these companies and really analyzing them. I tell you, it's sort of like arbitrage, but nobody appreciates that. When you buy a company, what you're really buying are its assets. So you've got to look at those assets and ask yourself, why aren't they doing as well as they should be? Fully 90% of the time, the reason is management. So we would find companies that weren't well run, and I had enough money that I could come in and say, I'm taking you over unless you change, or unless the board does X, Y, or Z, a lot of times the board said, okay. But sometimes the management would fight us and perhaps go to court. Very few people had the tenacity I had or were willing to risk the money. If you looked at it, it appeared that we were risking a lot of money, but we weren't. Tr, But you didn't see it as risky because you knew the asset's real value? Ci, You look for risk-reward in the world, right? Everything is risk and reward. But you've got to understand what the risk is, and also understand what the reward is. Most people saw much more risk than I did. But math doesn't lie, and they simply didn't understand it. TR, why not? CI, because there were too many variables and too many analysts that could sway your opinion. TR, they're making it harder for you to beat them these days. CI, not really. The system is so flawed that you can't get mediocre managers out. Here's an example, let's say I inherit a nice vineyard on beautiful land. Six months later I want to sell it, because it's not making any money. But I've got a problem, the guy who manages the vineyard is never there. He's playing golf all day. But he won't give up his job running the vineyard. And he won't let anybody look at the vineyard because he doesn't want to see it sold. You might say to me, what are you, crazy? Get the police, kick him out. But that's the trouble with public companies, you can't do it without a very difficult fight. Tr, The rules make it hard to kick the CEO off your property. Ci, That's the trouble, the shareholders of corporations have great difficulty being heard, but at IEP we fight and often win. Once in power, sometimes we find the CEO is not so bad. But the bottom line is, the way public companies are governed is really bad for this country. There are so many rules that keep you from being an activist. There are many barriers to getting control, but when we do, all shareholders, as the record shows, generally do very well. Additionally, what we do is also very good for the economy, because it makes these companies more productive, and this is not just short-term. Sometimes we don't sell for 15-20 to years, TR, what's the solution? CI, get rid of the poison pills that issue more stock at a discount if any one shareholder buys too much, and get rid of the staggered board elections so the shareholders can decide how they want the company run. We should make these companies be accountable and have true elections. Even in politics, as bad as it is, you can get rid of the president if you wanted to. He's only there for four years at a time but at our companies, it is very hard to get rid of a CEO even if he or she is doing a terrible job. Often CEOs get the top job because they're like the guy in college who was the head of the fraternity. He wasn't the smartest guy, but he was the best social guy and a very likable guy, and so he moved up through the ranks. Tr, sometimes you don't need a proxy fight to change the direction of a company. You bought a lot of stock in Netflix recently, almost 10%, And you made two billion dollars in two years. C.I., that was my son, Brett, and his partner who did it. I don't know much about technology, but he showed me in 20 minutes why it was a great deal. And I just said, buy everything you can. It wasn't really an activist play. T.R., what did you see? What did he show you in those 20 minutes that made you know that the stock was that undervalued? C.I. Simple, most of the great experts were worried about the wrong thing. At that moment, Netflix had $2 billion in fees coming in every year. But those fees aren't on their balance sheet. And so, all these experts were saying, how are they going to get money to pay for content? Well, they've got the $2 billion coming in. And generally subscribers are loyal for longer than you would imagine. It would take much longer than most people thought to put the huge cash flow in jeopardy, no matter what happened. TR, but you never tried to take over Netflix? CI, they thought they were going to have a proxy fight. But I said, Reed, Hastings, Netflix co-founder and CEO, I'm not going to have a proxy fight with you. You just got a hundred point move. Then I asked them if they knew the icon rule. They said, what's that, Carl? I said, anybody who makes me eight hundred million in three months, I don't punch them in the mouth. T.R. laughs. You cashed out a portion of the stock toward the end of 2013. C.I., when the stock got to three hundred and fifty dollars, I decided to take some off the table. But I didn't sell at all. T.R., what is the biggest misconception about you? C.I., I think people don't understand, or maybe I don't understand, my own motivations. While it may sound corny, I really do think that at this point in my life, I am trying to do something to keep our country great. I want my legacy to be that I changed the way business is done. It bothers me that so many of our great companies are so badly managed. I want to change the rules so that the CEO and boards are truly accountable to their shareholders. Tr, You and your wife have signed the Giving Pledge. What other types of philanthropy are you most passionate about? See, I, I give a lot, but I like doing my own thing. I just put $30 million into charter schools because in charter schools the principal and teachers are accountable. As a result, a charter school run correctly gives our children a much better education than they generally get in public schools. We are a great country, but sadly, The way we run our companies and our educational system, for the most part, is dysfunctional. I hope to use my wealth to aid me in being a force in changing this. Sadly, if we don't, we are on the road to becoming a second-rate country or even worse. Chapter 6.2. David Swenson, a $23.9 billion labor of love. Chief Investment Officer, Yale University and author of Unconventional Success, A fundamental approach to personal investment. David Swenson is probably the best-known investor you've never heard of. He's been described as the Warren Buffett of institutional investing. Over the course of his celebrated tenure as Yale's chief investment officer, he's turned $1 billion in assets into more than $23.9 billion, boasting 13.9% annual returns along the way a record unmatched by many of the high-flying hedge funds that have tried to lure him away over the last 27 years. As soon as you meet Swenson, you realize that he's not in it for the money he's in it for the love of the game and a sense of service to a great university. And he's got the paycheck to prove it, his worth in the private sector would be exponentially higher than what he earns at Yale. At his core, Swenson is an inventor and a disruptor. His Yale Model, also known as the Endowment Model, was developed with his colleague and former student Dean Takahashi, and is an application of modern portfolio theory. The idea is to divide a portfolio into five or six roughly equal parts and invest each in a different asset class. The Yale Model is a long-term strategy that favors broad diversification and a bias toward equities, with less emphasis on lower-return asset classes such as bonds or commodities. Swenson's position on liquidity has also been called revolutionary he avoids rather than chases liquidity, arguing that it leads to lower returns on assets that could otherwise be invested more efficiently. Before his days as the rock star of institutional investing, Swenson worked on Wall Street for bond powerhouse Salomon Brothers. Many credit him with structuring the world's first currency swap, a trade between IBM and the World Bank, which in effect led to the creation of the interest rate and ultimately credit default swap markets, representing over $1 trillion in assets today. But don't hold that against him. I had the privilege of sitting down with Swenson at his Yale office, and before I ventured up the hallowed halls of that storied institution, I did what any good student would do, I spent the night before cramming. Not wanting to be anything less than prepared, I absorbed 400 pages of unconventional success, Swenson's Manifesto on Personal Investing and Diversification, before the meeting. What follows is an edited and abridged version of our nearly four-hour interview. TR, you work on behalf of one of the largest institutions in this country, yet you have a deep interest in and commitment to the individual investor. Talk to me about that. DS, I'm basically an optimistic person, but when it comes to the world that individual investors face, it's a mess. TR, why is that? DS, the fundamental reason that individuals don't have the types of choices they should have is because of the profit orientation in the mutual fund industry. Don't get me wrong, I'm a capitalist and I believe in profits. But there's a fundamental conflict between the profit motive and fiduciary responsibility because the greater the profits for the service provider, the lower the returns for the investor. TR, when we're talking about fiduciary responsibility, not all investors even know what that means. What we're really talking about is, you have to put investors' interests ahead of your own. DS, The problem is that the managers of the mutual funds make more money when they gather huge piles of assets and charge high fees. The high fees are in direct conflict with the goal of producing high returns. And so what happens over and over again is the profits win and the investor seeking returns loses. There are only two organizations where that conflict doesn't exist, and they're Vanguard and TIACREF. Both operate on a not-for-profit basis they're looking out for the investors' interests and their strong fiduciaries. And fiduciary responsibility always wins. TR, because mutual funds spectacularly underperform the market. I've read that from 1984 to 1998, only about 4% of funds with over $100 million in assets under management, AUM, beat the Vanguard 500. And that 4% isn't the same every year a more simple way of saying that is that 96% of all mutual funds fail to beat the market. DS, those statistics are only the tip of the iceberg. The reality is even worse. When you look at past performance, you can only look at the funds in existence today. TR, Survivors. DS, exactly. Those statistics suffer from survivorship bias. Over the last 10 years, hundreds of mutual funds have gone out of business because they performed poorly. Of course, they don't take the funds with great returns and merge them into funds with lousy returns. They take the funds with lousy returns and merge them into funds with great returns. TR, so the 96% isn't accurate? Ds, it's worse. TR, wow. Ds, there's another reason the investor's reality is worse than the numbers you cite, and that's because of our own behavioral mistakes we make as individual investors. Individuals tend to buy funds that have good performance. And they chase returns. And then when funds perform poorly, they sell. And so they end up buying high and selling low. And that's a bad way to make money. TR, what's the reality of chasing returns? DS, a lot of it has to do with marketing. Nobody wants to say, I own a bunch of one- and two-star funds. They want to own four-star funds. And five-star funds. And brag about it at the office. TR, of course. DS, but the four- and five-star funds are the ones that have performed well, not the ones that will perform well. If you systematically buy the ones that have performed well and sell the ones that have performed poorly, you're going to end up underperforming. So add to your statistics that more than 90% of funds fail to match the market, and then add in the way people behave they further depress their returns below the market. Tr. So chasing returns is a guaranteed way to have a lower return or lose money. Ds. Those factors that randomly cause something to perform well are just as likely to reverse themselves. And cause what had performed well to perform poorly it's called reversion to the mean tr okay so what can investors do to help their cause ds there are only three tools or levers that investors have to increase returns the first is asset allocation what assets are you going to hold in your portfolio and in which proportions are you going to hold them the second is market timing Are you going to try to bet on whether one asset class is going to perform better in the short run relative to the other asset classes you hold? TR, are you going to be in bonds, or stocks, or real estate? DS, yes, those short-term market timing bets. And the third tool is security selection. How are you going to structure your bond portfolio or stock portfolio? And that's it. Those are the only three tools we have. The overwhelmingly most important, as you figured out, is Asset Allocation. TR, I read that in your book, and it blew me away. DS, one of the things I love teaching my students at Yale is that Asset Allocation actually explains more than 100% of returns in investing. How can that be true? The reason is, when you engage in market timing, it costs you money, it's not something you can play for free. Every time you buy or sell, you pay a broker. So there's a leakage in fees and commissions paid which reduces overall returns. And the same is true for security selection. TR, so this takes us back to index funds and a passive approach to investing. DS, right? The active managers charge higher fees with promises of beating the market, but we've seen it's a false promise more often than not. You can take a passive approach and own the whole market. And you can buy the entire market for a very, very low fee. TR, how low? DS, less than 20 basis points. And you can get it through a mutual fund offered by Vanguard. So if you can implement your investment with low cost, passively managed indexed funds, you're going to be a winner. TR, you're not paying fees and you're not trying to beat the market. DS, plus, you get another benefit, your tax bill is going to be lower. This is huge. One of the most serious problems in the mutual fund industry, which is full of serious problems, is that almost all mutual fund managers behave as if taxes don't matter. But taxes matter. Taxes matter a lot. TR, is there any bigger bill we face in our lives? DS, no. And this speaks to the importance of taking advantage of every tax advantaged investment opportunity that you can. You should maximize your contributions if you've got a 401k or a 403b if you work for a non-profit. You should take every opportunity to invest in a tax deferred way. TR, how do we set up the most efficient asset allocation? DS, anybody who's taken freshman economics has probably heard there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. But Harry Markowitz, whom people call the father of modern portfolio theory, says that diversification is a free lunch. TR, why is that? DS, because for any given level of return, if you diversify, you can generate that return with a lower risk, or for any given level of risk, if you diversify, you can generate a higher return. So it's a free lunch. Diversification makes your portfolio better. TR, What's the minimum diversification you need? DS, there are two levels of diversification. One is related to security selection. If you decide to buy an index fund, you are diversified to the maximum extent possible because you own the whole market. That's one of the beauties of the index fund, and it's one of the wonderful things Jack Bogle did for investors in America. He gave them the opportunity in a low-cost way to buy the whole market. But from an asset allocation perspective, when we talk about diversification, we're talking about investing in multiple asset classes. There are six that I think are really important, and they are U.S. stocks, U.S. treasury bonds, U.S. treasury inflation protected securities, tips, foreign developed equities, foreign emerging market equities, and real estate investment trusts, REITs. TR, why do you pick those six versus others? And what's your portfolio allocation? DS, equities are the core for portfolios that have a long time horizon. Equities are obviously riskier than bonds. If the world works the way it's supposed to work, equities will produce superior returns. It's not true day in and day out, or week in and week out, or even year in and year out, but over reasonably long periods of time, equities should generate higher returns. I have a strawman portfolio in my book, and 70% of the assets in there are equities, or equity-like, and 30% are fixed income. TR, let's start with the equity side of the portfolio, the 70%. One of your rules for diversification is to never have anything weighted more than 30%, is that correct? DS, yes. TR, and so you put the first 30% where? DS, US stocks. One of the things I think that's really important is we should never underestimate the resilience of the US economy. It's very powerful. And no matter how much the politicians try and screw it up, there's an underlying strength there. And I never want to bet against that. TR, and that's why you're so heavily weighted, 70%, toward growth. Not just in the US economy, but in overall business around the world. D.S., and then I probably put 10% in emerging markets, 15% in foreign development, and 15% in real estate investment trusts. T.R., tell me about the 30% fixed income securities. D.S., I've got all of them in treasury securities. Half of them are traditional bonds. The other half are in inflation-protected tips. If you buy regular treasury bonds and inflation takes off, you're going to end up with losses. TR, people get confused by that, unfortunately. DS, when I first started on Wall Street, I remember going to my first client meetings and whispering to myself over and over again, interest rates up, prices down. I didn't want to get that wrong. That would have been really embarrassing. TR, can an individual investor make money in today's market? DS, that's the beauty of having a long-term buy and hold strategy. That's why you diversify. I'm not smart enough to know where the markets are going to go. In the late 90s people said, why did you take all this trouble to diversify your portfolio? All you needed to do was own the S&P 500. And what they were doing was, they were looking at the best asset class, and it just happened to be our equity market. And they said, everything you did was a waste of time. But that was the American experience. And that's not the only experience in the world. And if, at the beginning of the 1990s, you were a Japanese investor who put all your money in the Japanese market, at the end of the 90s, you'd be miserable. You're never going to have the return that's equal to the best individual asset class return, and you never know what that asset class is going to be before the fact. TR, what do you say to the baby boomers out there, the ones who are facing retirement in the not-too-distant future? DS, Unfortunately, I think most individuals don't have any idea how much money they need to save for their retirement. I really worry that a lot of people will look at their 401k account and say, I have $50,000 or $100,000 that's a lot of money. But if you're talking about financing a retirement, it's not a lot of money. TR, A lot of people aren't going to be able to retire when they want to retire. DS, the only way people can get to the right place is to educate themselves. And I'm thrilled you're trying to help people get the knowledge that they need in order to make intelligent decisions. TR, I understand that you went through a tough health time. What's next for you? DS, about a year ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. I didn't have a bucket list. I didn't want to quit and travel around the world. I wanted to keep on doing what I could to support the university. Manage Yale's portfolio as long as I could do it. And that's what I'm doing. I love my job. TR, that's awesome. DS, I think Yale is one of the world's great institutions. And if I can do anything to make it a stronger place and a better place, then maybe I will have made a difference. TR, David, thank you, this has been extraordinary. I feel like I went to Yale and took a class on portfolio construction. DS, Well, you did. Chapter 6.3 John C. Bogle, The Vanguard of Investing Creator of the Index Fund, Founder and Former CEO of the Vanguard Group If you haven't read any of Jack Bogle's books or listened to his no-nonsense commentary on TV, then you've been missing out on an American treasure. Fortune magazine named Bogle one of the four investment giants of the 20th century. He's been compared with Benjamin Franklin for his inventiveness and civic spirit. Some say he's done more for the individual investor than anyone in the history of business. How did he do it? When Jack Bogle founded the Vanguard Group in 1974, index funds were just an academic theory. But Bogle was willing to bet his company on the idea that low cost, Lofi mutual funds that track the performance of the whole stock market would outperform most managed funds year after year. Why? Because investors as a group can't beat the market because they are the market. Talk about a disruptor. At first, his index funds were mocked as Bogle's folly. A competitor even called the idea un-American. But Bogle brushed off his critics and went on to build Vanguard into the largest mutual fund management firm in the world, with $2.86 trillion in assets under management. How big is that? If Vanguard were a country, its economy would be the same size as Great Britain's. And now, according to Morningstar, US index funds represent more than a third of all equity mutual fund investments. Jack Bogle was born in New Jersey in 1929 right at the start of the Great Depression. His family wasn't wealthy, but Bogle was smart enough to get a scholarship to Princeton, where he served meals to other students to help pay his way. He wrote his senior thesis in economics about mutual funds, hinting at the path he would later carve in the industry. And he never forgot what a friend told him during a summer job as a stock runner, Bogle, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about the stock market, nobody knows nothing. After graduating magna cum laude, in 1951 he joined the Wellington Management Company in Philadelphia, where he rose to become president. But during the go-go years of the mid-1960s, Bogle merged with a management group he hoped would pump up his business. It was the worst mistake of my life, he told me. The new partners ran the mutual funds into the ground and then used their seats on the board to fire Bogle. So what did he do? Instead of accepting defeat, Vogel turned that failure into his greatest victory, one that changed the face of investing. Because of the legal structure of mutual funds, Vogel was still in charge of Wellington's funds, which were separate from the management company, with a somewhat different board of directors. He stayed on as the fund's chairman, but he wasn't allowed to manage them. So how do I get into investment management without being an investment manager? He said during our interview, You've already figured out the answer. Start an unmanaged fund. We called it an index fund, I named it Vanguard. At first everybody thought it was a joke. Incredible. If Jack Bogle hadn't made that mistake, he would never have founded Vanguard and millions and millions of individual investors might never have had the chance to avoid excessive fees and add billions of dollars to their collective returns. I sat down with this living legend in his office on the Vanguard campus in Mulvern, Pennsylvania, as a winter storm bore down on the East Coast. He still goes to work every day at the Vanguard Research Center that he's headed since stepping down as senior chairman in 2000. Jack shook my hand with the grip of a man half his age. Maybe that's because a 1996 heart transplant gave him a new lease on life to continue what he calls a crusade to give investors a fair shake. What follows is an edited and abridged version of our four hour conversation. TR, tell me Jack, where does your drive come from? JB, from my earliest memories of my youth, I had to work. I started working at nine delivering newspapers around the block. I always loved it. I'm something of an introvert and after working all the time, you don't have to make a lot of idle conversation. And I have a competitive streak. That kind of spoiling for a good fight even when you don't need one makes up for a lot. TR, you started your career at a traditional mutual fund management company. JB, I was young, I was not wise enough to learn the lessons of history that I should have known or to act on them. I thought there was such a thing as a permanently good investment manager, there is not. They come and go. TR, why is that? JB, there's an awful lot of luck relative to skill. Investing is 95% luck and 5% skill. And maybe if I'm wrong, it's 98 and 2. TR, not to insult any active managers. JB, look, you put around 1024 people flipping coins in a room. You tell them all to flip, and one of those 1024 is going to flip heads 10 times in a row, And you'd say, what a lucky guy. Right. But in the fun business, you'd say, what a genius. Laughs. You can even have gorillas do it, and the outcome is exactly the same. TR, what did you mean when you said, there's a big difference between a smart guy and a good investor? JB, well, first of all, investors are average. Let's start with that. Very simple. And most individual investors pay too much for the privilege of being average. TR, how's that? JB, active management is going to cost you around 2% all in for the average fund, including the 1.2% average expense ratio, transaction costs, cash drag, and sales charges. So that means in a 7% market, they'll get 5. An index fund that costs 0.05% means that you get a 6.95% return. At 6.95%, you turn $1 into about $30 over 50 years. But at 5%, you get $10 instead of $30. And what does that mean? It means you put up 100% of the cash, you took 100% of the risk, and you got 30% of the reward. That's what happens when you look at returns over the long term. People don't, but they're going to have to learn to do that. TR, they don't see the compounding of costs and compounding of fees. JB, people out there really should understand why they're buying stocks. It's for the dividend yield and it's for the earnings growth. The fact is that over the long term, half of the return in the stock market has come from dividends. And that's where all the fund's expenses come from. So think about this for a minute, Tony. The gross yield of the average equity fund is 2%. The average equity fund has an expense ratio of 1.2%. They're going to take that out of that yield. So you're getting a yield of 0.8%. The manager is taking half of your dividends to pay himself. And this industry is consuming every bit of 60% of dividends. And sometimes 100% and sometimes more than 100%. You can see why I'm such a pain in the tail to the industry. TR, yet there are still 100 million people invested in actively managed mutual funds. How is that humanly possible? JB, well, never underestimate the power of marketing. Back in 2000, we checked and the average fund that was advertised in Money magazine then had an annual return of 41%. Many of these funds perhaps most are no longer around. Investors expect their smart manager will be smart forever, but it won't happen. They expect that he's generated 20% returns, he'll continue to generate 20%. And that's just ridiculous, it can't happen, it won't happen. T.R., Vanguard is managed only to benefit its fund shareholders, who actually own the company. Are you a supporter of the universal fiduciary standard? J.B., I'm a demander, and I may be one of the very first. The investment company institute, the mutual fund industry's lobbying organization, says, we don't need a federal standard of fiduciary duty. We are a fiduciary. Well, number one, then why do they object to it? That's an interesting question. But number two, they don't understand we have this conflict of fiduciary duties. The manager of a publicly held firm like, say, BlackRock has two sets of fiduciary duties. One is fiduciary duty to the shareholders of the BlackRock mutual funds to maximize their returns. And the other is the fiduciary duty to earn the most money they possibly can for the public owners of BlackRock. And so BlackRock CEO Lawrence D. Fink has the consummate dilemma. To maximize the return to mutual fund shareholders, he must lower fees. But to maximize the return to the owners of BlackRock, he must increase fees. So they're trying to do both. And the company is making more money than ever. TR, how ironic. JB, is this a great country or what? TR, what's next, in your mind, over the next 10 years that is compelling and or challenging? JB, I see corporate America continuing to grow. And, remember, the stock market is a derivative. It's a derivative of the value created by our corporations. They earn money, and they're going to continue to, continue to earn money. They may earn a little less, but they will still get bigger and bigger, more and more efficient. So they'll continue growing, probably at a slower rate than we're accustomed to, but still a healthy rate. Tr, primarily because spending will decrease based on demographics, or because we just borrowed so much that we have to still get our house in order. JB, we still have to deleverage. There's too much borrowing in the country. There's not really too much leverage on the corporate side. Corporate balance sheets are in pretty good shape. But government balance sheets, including federal, state and local are all overextended. And we've got to do something about that. One of the big risks, one of the big questions really is the Federal Reserve now has in round numbers $4 trillion in reserves. That's $3 trillion more than usual. With about $3 trillion having been acquired in the last five, six years. And that has to be unwound. And it's not clear to anybody exactly how that's going to happen. But everybody knows it has to happen sooner or later. TR, how concerned should we be about another financial crisis? JB, if you're thinking not as an average investor, but as someone who is thinking about the big picture, never lose your sense of history. Don't think it won't repeat itself. As Mark Twain says, history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. So we do face the possibility of a serious world financial crisis. Even a world depression. What are the chances of a world depression? I'd say maybe one in ten. But it's not one in a thousand. So I don't look at it as likely, but anyone that says it can't happen here is wrong tr, is not paying attention to history. JB, yes. So, basically, use your God-given common sense. Not getting carried away by the fads and fashions of the moment. And not getting carried away by the momentary gyrations in the markets, stocks or bond. TR, In your 64 years in the business, you've gone through every type of market. How do you take the human emotional element out of investing? JB, none of US can, including me. I'm trying to. People say, how do you feel when the market goes down 50%? I say, honestly, I feel miserable. I get knots in my stomach. So what do I do? I get out a couple of my books on staying the course and reread them. TR, if you couldn't pass on any money to your kids or grandkids, but you could pass on some principles, what would they be? JB, I would say, to begin with, pay attention to where your assets are invested. Choose your asset allocation in accordance with your risk tolerance and your objectives. Number two would be, diversify. And be sure and diversify through low-cost index funds. There are a lot of high-cost ones out there. We shouldn't forget that. And don't trade. Don't do something, just stand there. No matter what. And you'll be able to resist the temptation more easily if you had a little bit more of your assets allocated to bonds than you think you should. TR, what other advice do you have for investors? JB, don't open the Wall Street Journal. Don't watch CNBC. We kid about it. I do interviews on CNBC a lot, and I keep wondering why they keep asking me back. I can handle somewhere between 40 seconds and 50 seconds of Jim Cramer. All the yelling and screaming and buy this and sell that. That's a distraction to the business of investing. We spend too much time, focus too much of our energy on all these things to do with investing, when you know what the outcome's going to be. You're going to get the market return plus or minus something. Mostly minus. And so why spend all this time trying to trade? trade the standard and pours 500 all day long in real time, as an early marketing campaign for the first ETF, exchange-traded fund, suggested. Anybody who is doing that should get a life. Take the kids out to the park. Take your wife out to dinner. If all else fails, read a good book. TR, what does money mean to you? JB, I look at money not as an end, but a means to an end. There's a great story about the two writers Kurt Vonnegut and Joe Heller. They meet at a party on Shelter Island. Kurt looks at Joe and says, that guy, our host over there, he made a billion dollars today. He's made more money in one day than you made on every single copy of Catch-22. And Heller looks at Vonnegut and says, that's okay, because I have something he, our host, will never have. Enough." I'm leaving my kids enough so they can do anything that they want, but not so much they can do nothing. I often say to them, sometimes I wish that you would have grown up with all the advantages I had. And their first reaction was, don't you mean disadvantages? No, kid, I don't. I mean advantages. Getting along in the world, working your way through it all. Tr, It took years for the concept of indexing to take hold and now index funds are taking the industry by storm. How's it feel to be right? JB, well, people say, you must be very proud. Look at what you built. And I tell them, there will be time for that, I think, someday. But not yet. I think it's Sophocles who said, one must wait until the evening to enjoy the splendor of the day. And my evening isn't here yet. You know, I've got to confess to you, I should have been dead alone long time ago. I had eight heart attacks before I got the heart transplant. My heart stopped. And I have no right to be around. But it is absolutely fabulous to be alive. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this. But I realize that I am seeing what I believe is the triumph of indexing. And really a revolution in investor preferences. There's not any question about that. It's going to change Wall Street. Wall Street's getting a lot smaller. I'm not sure I understand the thing fully, but I'm guessing if I were dead, I wouldn't be seeing it. TR, will you ever retire, by the way? JB, probably more likely to be in God's hands than mine. I'm enjoying myself and thriving on my mission to give investors a fair shake. Jack Bogle portfolio core principles one. Asset allocation in accordance with your risk tolerance and your objectives. Two. Diversify through low cost index funds. Three. Have as much in bond funds as your age. A crude benchmark, he says. Jack is in his 80s and has 40% of his total portfolio invested in bonds. But a very young person could be 100% equities. So in my total portfolio, including both my personal and retirement accounts, about 60% of my assets are in stocks, mostly in Vanguard stock index funds. The rest is split between Vanguard's total bond market index fund and tax exempt municipal bond funds. My municipal bond holdings are split about two-thirds in Vanguard's intermediate-term tax-exempt fund and about one-third in Vanguard's limited-term tax-exempt fund, limited being somewhere between short and intermediate, a little bit longer for the extra yield. I won't need to draw on the money, I hope, in my taxable portfolio. And those are still nice tax-exempt yields, around 3% or so, which is the equivalent of 5% for someone in my tax bracket, and I don't need any more than that. I'm happy to get it. I worry a little bit, of course, about the solidity of the municipal bond market, but I've decided that with our top-notch analysts here at Vanguard, they should be okay. In my tax-deferred portfolio, which is my largest asset, my bond assets are largely in Vanguard's total bond market index fund. That includes long-dash, intermediate-dash, and short-term bonds. It holds Treasury, Mortgage, and Corporate Bonds. I'm very satisfied with the returns on my total portfolio. After an awful 17% decline in 2008, the S&P 500 was down 37% that year, more than twice as much, my returns have been consistently positive, averaging almost 10% per year. I'm happy to simply stay the course and ride it all out. Chapter 6.4 Warren Buffett, the Oracle of Omaha. The legend who said it all, CEO, Berkshire Hathaway. I was in the green room of the Today Show, waiting to go on the air, when in walked the man himself, Warren Buffett, one of the greatest investors of the 20th century and, with $67.6 billion to his name, the third wealthiest man in the world. We were scheduled to appear, together with Spanks founder Sarah Blakely and future Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro, in a roundtable discussion with Matt Lauer about economic success and our views on the direction of the US economy. I've always been a huge fan of Buffett's. Like millions of investors around the world, I've been inspired by the story of how a humble stockbroker from Nebraska turned a failing New England textile business called Berkshire Hathaway into the fifth largest publicly held company in the world, with assets of nearly a half trillion dollars and holdings in everything from Geico Insurance to Seize Candies. His not-so-secret to success has been value investing, a system he learned and perfected from his mentor Ben Graham. It revolves around looking for undervalued companies and buying stock with the expectation it will rise in price over the long term. It's one of the simplest forms of asymmetric risk-reward, and one that requires a tremendous amount of research, skill, and cash which is one of the reasons Buffett pursued insurance holdings that throw off great cash flow and thus investment opportunities. Not only has Buffett been phenomenally successful in business, but also he's become one of the most generous philanthropists in history, pledging 99% of his vast personal fortune to charity through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He's also probably the most quotable and quoted business leader ever, and you've already read some priceless nuggets of his wisdom sprinkled throughout these pages. When I finally had him in the same room with me, I couldn't resist the opportunity to tell him about this book project. Perhaps we could sit down for an interview about how the individual investor can win in this volatile economy? He looked up at me with a twinkle in his eye. Tony, he said, I'd love to help you, but I'm afraid I've already said everything a person can say on the subject. It was hard to argue with that. Since 1970, he's been putting out an eagerly awaited annual letter to his sh- shareholders, filled with plain-spoken investing advice and commentary. Plus, there have already been nearly fifty books published with his name on the jacket even a few of them written by Buffett himself. Still, I pressed ahead. But now that you've announced you're leaving almost all of your wealth to charity, what kind of portfolio would you recommend for your family to protect and grow their own investments? He smiled again and grabbed my arm. It's so simple, he said. Indexing is the way to go. Invest in great American businesses without paying all the fees of a mutual fund manager and hang on to those companies and you will win over the long term. Wow! The most famous stock picker in the world has embraced index funds as the best and most cost-effective investment vehicles. Later, even after Steve Forbes and Ray Dalio reached out on my behalf to encourage Warren to have a more detailed interview with me, he let me know there was no need. Warren told me that everything he had to say about investing that's important is already published. All he would tell an individual investor today is to invest in index funds that give you exposure to the broad market of the best companies in the world and hold on to them for the long term. I guess repetition is the mother of skill. I got it, Warren. In this year's letter to the shareholders, Warren emphasized the same advice to all investors once again. What's his asset allocation? Below are the instructions he has left for his wife and their trust after he has passed, put 10%, in short-term government bonds and 90% in a very low-cost S&P 500 index fund. I suggest vanguards. I believe the trust's long-term results from this policy will be superior to those attained by most investors whether pension funds, institutions, or individuals who employ high-fee managers. Jack Bogle is very happy about this advice. America's most respected investor is endorsing the strategy Jack has promoted for almost 40 years. Remember, Buffett made a $1 million wager against New York-based Protege Partners betting that Protege could not pick five top hedge fund managers who will collectively beat the S&P 500 index over a 10-year period? Again, as of February 2014, the S&P 500 was up 43.8%, while the five hedge funds were up 12.5%. The Oracle of Omaha has spoken. Chapter 6.5 Paul Tudor Jones, a modern-day Robin Hood Founder, Tudor Investment Corporation, founder, Robin Hood Foundation. One of the most successful traders of all times, Paul Tudor Jones started his own firm at the age of 26, after cutting his teeth trading cotton in the commodity pits. Paul has defied gravity, having produced 28 straight full years of wins. He is legendary for predicting Black Monday, the 1987 stock market crash that saw a 22% drop in a single day, still the largest percentage stock market drop in any day in history. At a time when the rest of the world was experiencing a meltdown, Paul and his clients captured a 60% monthly return and a nearly 200% return for the year. Paul is one of my closest friends and personal heroes. I've been privileged to be his peak performance coach since 1993-21 of his 28 full consecutive years of wins and the majority of his trading career. What's even more impressive to me than Paul's stunning financial success is his heartfelt obsession to constantly find ways to give back and make a difference. As the founder of the iconic Robinhood Foundation, Jones has inspired and enrolled some of the smartest and wealthiest investors in the world to attack poverty in New York City. Paul and the Robinhood team do this work with the same analytical rigor that hedge fund billionaires typically reserve for financial investments. Since 1988, Robinhood has invested over $1.45 billion in city programs. And just like Jones's relentless pursuit of asymmetric returns in his financial life, he'll share his rule of 5 to 1 in a moment, his foundation work is no different. Robinhood's operating and administrative costs are covered 100% by board participation, so donors earn a 15 to 1 return on their investment in their community. As Eric Schmidt, executive chairman of Google, says, there is literally no foundation, no activity, that is more effective. Jones himself will tell you he's a trader, not a traditional investor, but like his former employer, E.F. Hutton, when Jones talks, people listen. As a macro trader, he studies the impact of fundamentals, psychology, technical analysis, flows of funds, and world events, and their impact on asset prices. Instead of focusing on individual stocks, he bets on trends that are shaping the world from the United States to China, from currencies to commodities to interest rates. He is sought out by some of the most influential financial leaders on the planet, finance ministers, central bank officials, and think tanks around the world. I met Paul for this interview at the magnificent campus in Greenwich, Connecticut, for his tutor investment family. During the interview, we dug down for the most valuable investment principles he has to share to benefit you, the individual investor. As a result, Paul is about to give us his $100,000 business education, the one he shares with his own family of traders and a few university students fortunate enough to hear his message each year. All this wisdom in just six pages. T.R. Paul, what you've done in investing, in trading, is extraordinary, 28 consecutive wins 28 years without a loss. How does a mortal do that? P.T.J., we're all products of our environment. I started out as a commodity trader in 1976. The great thing about being a commodity trader trading cotton, soybeans, orange juice is that those markets are hugely impacted by weather. In a space of three or four years, you'd have huge bull markets and huge bear markets. I very quickly learned the psychology of the bull market and the bear market and how quickly they could change. What the emotions were like when there were lows. I saw fortunes made and lost. I sat there and watched Bunker Hunt take a 400 million dollar position in silver to 10 billion dollars in 1980, which made him the richest man on earth. Then he went from 10 billion dollar back down to 400 million dollars in 5 weeks. TR, WOW. PTJ, so I learned how quickly it can all go away, how precious it is when you have it. The most important thing for me from that is that defense is 10 times more important than offense. The wealth you have can be so ephemeral, you have to be very focused on the downside at all times. Tr, Absolutely. Ptj, When you have a good position in something, you don't need to look at it, it will take care of itself. Where you need to be focused is where you're losing money, and that's actually when people generally don't want to look, my account's going down. I don't even want to open it. So I've created a process over time whereby risk control is the number one single most important focus that I have every day walking in. I want to know I'm not losing it. TR, what do you think are the biggest myths that the general population has about investing? What hurts them? PTJ, you can invest for the long term, but you're not going to necessarily be wealthy for the long term because everything has a price and a central value over time. But it's asking a lot, I think, of an average investor to understand valuation metrics all the time. The way that you guard against that guard against the fact that maybe you're not the most informed person of every asset class is you run a diversified portfolio. TR, of course. PTJ, here's a story I'll never forget. It was 1976, I'd been working for six months, and I went to my boss, cotton trader Eli Tullis, and said, I've got to trade, I've got to trade. And he said, son, you're not going to trade right now. Maybe in another six months I'll let you. I said, no, 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 I've got to trade right now. He goes, now, listen, the markets are going to be here in 30 years. The question is, are you? TR how perfect. PTJ, PTJ, so the turtle wins the race, right? I think the single most important thing that you can do is diversify your portfolio. Diversification is key, playing defense is key, and, again, just staying in the game for as long as you can. TR, following up on diversification, how do you think about asset allocation in terms of playing defense? Ptj, there's never going to be a time where you can say with, absolute, certainty that this is the mix I should have for the next 5 or 10 years. The world changes so fast. If you go and look right now, the valuations of both stocks and bonds in the United States are both ridiculously overvalued. And cash is worthless, so what do you do with your money? Well, there's a time when to hold M and a time when to fold M. You're not going to necessarily always be in a situation to make a lot of money, where the opportunities are great. TR, so what do you do? PTJ, sometimes you just have to say, gee, there's no value here, there's nothing compelling. I'm going to be defensive and run a portfolio where I don't have any great expectations. I'm going to be in a position where I don't get hurt, and if and when values do rise, I'll have some firepower to do something. TR, okay, any specific strategies for protecting your portfolio? PTJ, I teach an undergrad class at the University of Virginia, and I tell my students, I'm going to save you from going to business school. Here, you're getting a hundred grand class, and I'm going to give it to you in two thoughts, okay? You don't need to go to business school, you've only got to remember two things. The first is, you always want to be with whatever the predominant trend is. You don't ever want to be a contrarian investor. The two wealthiest guys in the United States, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, how did they get their money? Bill Gates got his money because he owned a stock, Microsoft, and it went up 800 times and he stayed with the trend. Trend. And Warren Buffett, he said, okay. I'm going to buy great companies.